turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 15. We'll be uh, wrapping up the end of 15 and then we'll jump into 16 this morning. In my life, uh, there's plenty of times where there is triumphs and there's just wonderful moments. Uh, and the problem with that is you just, they don't last forever. And it becomes frustrating, doesn't it? Uh, it's convicting to me often how I can be, uh, my relationship with the Lord is just great and it's a wonderful day and everything's awesome and you know i mean i mean i just feel like i mean i'm close to the lord and i'm filled with his spirit and i'm being controlled by his spirit and then something happens and it completely changes everything and now i'm i'm in the flesh i mean it could be as simple as somebody pulling out in front of me in the car it could be as simple as one of my kids responding in a way that i didn't appreciate or didn't like it could be a bazillion different things it could be an email it could be a phone call it could be Lots of different things, but but the the slightest thing will set us off, and we suddenly we shift gears from from a moment of triumph to a moment of of trial in the way that we respond to things. It, it's almost laughable in some ways when you look at the nation of Israel in the amazing, unbelievable, powerful ways God displays His saving hand, His incredible power his strength to deliver them, and as quick as he delivers them in a miraculous, unbelievable, life-altering way, within moments, they are mad, grumbling, complaining, and wishing that they could go back to slavery and bondage and captivity in Egypt. Again, as we've talked about before, Egypt is a picture of the world. And there's a tendency for us, even though God has delivered us from so much, we have this appetite for going back to the stuff that really is going to destroy us. That, that just leaves us shackled in, in bondage rather than living lives of freedom, resting in what Christ has done and how he has provided so much for us through Jesus. But we're so fickle. And it, we would, it would be laughable to look at the Israelites if we weren't just like them. And, and it's even worse in that they had, a, they had a cloud and they had a pillar of fire, pillar of cloud, pillar of fire that led them through the wilderness. Well, we have the Holy Spirit not in the middle of our camp, but in the middle of our hearts as believers. And we are still fickle. We have the full revelation of God. We have the whole word of God, Old Testament, New Testament, the whole story. We've got it all. And yet we still are so fickle in our relationship with God. And that's what this passage beautifully uh, or convictingly illustrates for us let's pick up in chapter 15 verse 22 then moses made israel set out from the red sea and they went into the wilderness of shur they went three days into the wilderness and found no water so god has just delivered them uh part of the red sea they got through on dry land the sea comes up encompasses all of the egyptian army and uh and god has delivered them and no longer do they have to look over their shoulders wondering is pharaoh and his army going to come after us no longer god has shown his power not just delivering them from egypt but now squashing the egyptian army and they stand could you just imagine how incredible that was they stand on the seashore looking back bodies of egyptians on the seashore having washed up and reflecting upon how god has delivered them in, in just the, all of the emotions and the feelings of, of their, their whole life. In fact, generation after generation or before, the generations previous to them for 400 years, just about. Incredible pain, suffering. And it's all gone. It's all over. Completely free. So much that 
this song of worship that we just sang a song reflecting that the song of Moses is is declared and they sing this song and they have this incredible, amazing, powerful moment of worship reflecting on what God has done. But the problem is you can't stay in the moment of triumph forever. At some point, you've got to take a step and you've got to continue the journey in your life. And so they come away from the seashore, away from God's power and deliverance, and they go, they continue on the path to the promised land that God had promised them. Three days into the wilderness, they begin to have a little bit of a problem. They can only carry so many reserves with them. They're starting to get a little low on food. They're certainly getting low on water, and now they they're beginning to drag. Kids are grumbling and complaining because they're thirsty. Animals are walking slower because they're thirsty. Everybody's struggling. Everybody's having a hard time. And they, they start to get frustrated. They don't understand why do we not have anything to drink. Now these are people that they're not prepared for the wilderness, right? Moses has been leading sheep as a shepherd for 40 years through the wilderness. He kind of knows how to deal with this. He's probably uh, been able to you know, kind of get his body ready for living the life of a Bedouin, you know, sojourner traveling through the wilderness with a bunch of sheep. He can kind of go a little, push himself a little further. He understands this. But now you have two million plus people behind him and they don't understand. They've never lived life apart from the Nile River flowing through their town and they're having a hard time not drinking. So they went three days into the wilderness and they found no water. When they came to Marah, They could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord. The Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them. There he tested them. It's an important statement there saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord, your God, and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep his, all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you and I will, that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord, your healer, which is Jehovah Rapha. Maybe you've heard that, Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. Then they said, uh, then they came to Elam. Uh, we'll Go to that in a minute. So what's going on here? They're in the wilderness. They're wandering. Uh, uh, they're, on, they're not wandering in circles yet, but they're on their path. And three days in, they're, they're struggling. They need something to drink. And a moment, a time of testing comes about in their life. A time of testing. Understand this. Life is not just triumphs, but it is full of trials. Sometimes the water's going to be bitter. Sometimes it's going to be sweet. Doesn't always taste good. Sometimes it's going to be a tough day. Sometimes it's going to be a tough week. Sometimes it's going to be a tough season in your life. Okay, everything's not going to be perfect. And the question is, is God good enough when the waters are sweet? But is God good when the waters are sweet? But is God bad when the waters are bitter? That's the way we kind of seem to judge God. If, if things are sweet, life's good, God's good all the time, Right? God's good. God's good all the time. We repeat that back and forth. You know, God is good. But that's when the things are, you know, water sweet. But when the water's bitter, is God good still? Is God really still faithful? Is God really still? We, we, have a, we struggle with that. God, I've given you my heart. I've given my life. I've surrendered my life to you. I've followed you. What more do you want from me? Why are the waters bitter? 
Why is life uncomfortable? Why are things not what I thought they were supposed to be? We have this problem in our lives that we assume that we're supposed to have heaven on earth. And we do everything within our power to construct the perfect life. Thinking that somehow we can have heaven on earth and it's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. You cannot convert this fallen world with fallen natures, with sin and disease and sickness and all these different things, wars and rumors of wars and tragedies and, and struggles and all of the things that come with the, that are results of the fall. We're not going to be able to redeem this world and create a perfect heaven on earth. It's not going to happen. There will never be a time where there's not sin and sickness and disease and suffering and tragedies and problems and struggles on this earth. Okay, it's not going to it's not going to work. In fact, there's going to be a point where God's going to destroy this earth. He's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. But until then. Until Jesus comes back and establishes his rule and reign and manifests it throughout the world, it's going to be rough. And we're going to have to understand there is times of testing. And will we trust God in those times? Are we blessed when the times are of plenty and cursed when there's times the times are lean? Times of testing reveal our hearts. Times of testing reveal our hearts. Hence the passage where he says, There the Lord made for them a statue and a rule and a rule. Verse 25. And there he tested them. Times of testing. The thing with testing is not that God is putting us in a time of temptation. It's not that God is uh, of course James chapter one makes it clear God does not lead anybody into sin, but God does use testing in our lives to reveal really where we're at, to reveal what's really going on. In our lives, it's it's a diagnostic tool that God uses to reveal where we're struggling in our relationship with Him, to expose areas that are not fully surrendered to Him, to expose areas where we need to be more dependent upon Christ. In fact, I would argue if you're not regularly seeing uh, things exposed in your life, okay, then you are there's something wrong. You're either not reading the Bible, you're not under the preaching teaching of the Word of God. Um, you're not around, you're not living authentic biblical community. You're not in relationship with anybody else because if you are connected with other people, if you're in the word, if you're hearing the word taught to you, if you're, it should be exposing areas where we need Jesus' help. And, and you're not going to be able to go too far in your life without uh, some challenges and some struggles. Now, I will say this. Let me give you a qualifier. There are people with and preachers, for that matter, in the name of Jesus that will misrepresent the word. And they'll say, you know what? If you are struggling, if you're sick, if they're sick, it's clear that it's because of sin in your life. And so there, you're, the problem here is you must have messed up. You must have done something wrong. Or that's one category. The other category is, well, the devil's after me. Oh, the devil. He's coming after me. The devil's doing this. The devil's doing that. The devil's. Why do we give him so much credit? He's our adversary. He's going to attack. He's going to be after us. Certainly, we understand that. But why are we giving credit to the devil? Do not put your focus on the devil. Put your focus on Jesus. Okay, he's the answer. He's our hope. He's our sustainer. Now, when there's, when there's struggles, you're like, is it wrong to say that maybe there's some sin in my life? No, that's wise. Certainly, that's good. But we need to look to Christ to be our solution and to be our Savior. He's the one who takes water that's bitter and gives us water that is sweet. In fact, it was through Jesus' death on the cross that made that possible. It wasn't a log thrown into 
the water that ultimately made life sweet for us. It was a piece of wood that Jesus was willing to put his life on, uh, to be crucified on, to be nailed to, that has brought about a sweetness of life. That even in the midst of suffering and of tragedy and of struggles in our lives, Jesus is enough. In fact, I will say, Jesus is far more revealed in your life. Jesus is far more evident in your life when you go through suffering and through bitter waters and Jesus is enough. Than when you live lives of triumph and sweetness and everything's great and everything's perfect. We don't need Jesus then. We're self-sufficient. Then we can we can ride that one out. But when things are tough and everything's ripped away and you're really struggling, is Jesus enough for us? Times of testing result in times of learning. God begins to give us some framework in how his people can get great life, wonderful relationship with their heavenly father who simply held their hand, led them out of bondage through the Red Sea, safely out of Egypt. Like a father would lead his child, he lovingly would never, a loving father would never purposely put their child in a time of suffering or hurt if there wasn't a purpose, if he didn't know it was going to strengthen them, if it wasn't going to grow them, if it wasn't going to. It's a gift. Suffering in the hands of God is a gift for us to grow in our dependency upon Christ, to grow in our relationship with Christ, to allow the world to see Jesus is enough in our lives. We've just got to trust him in that. There's certainly going to be times of bitterness, but these are times of testing. They're times of learning. And then we know that God will bring a time of refreshment. Verse 27, then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. God knew that, yeah, three days, they're going to be thirsty. But he's going to bring them some water. He's going to provide for them. But there's going to be a time of refreshment. There's going to be a time of encouragement. There's going to be time. And listen, when those times of refreshment come, man, soak it up. (laughs) Enjoy it. Enjoy it. It's a wonderful time. It's a wonderful time. It's not really about us deserving or not deserving. It's about God being gracious to provide for us, to lead us. And there's going to be, through the ups and downs and the challenges of life, Jesus will be enough. He'll be enough. And ultimately, he is our Elam. He is our spring of refreshment. Jesus is our oasis in the wilderness and in the desert. Times of testing lead to times of learning in our lives. And in those times of learning, we find times of refreshment where we are sustained by God. I think it was C.S. Lewis, if I can remember the quote correctly, he said that, uh, that God whispers in times of plenty, but he shouts in times of suffering. It, we, we never can hear the voice of God so loud as when we are in great desperate need for him. Times of bitterness, times of suffering, times of struggle. That's the times that, that we often grow the most because we're tested. It reveals our need for Christ and we lean into Jesus. And those are the times that are the most refreshing for us, quite frankly. You would never sign up for them. But in hindsight, you look back and go, man, that was, I'm so thankful that the Lord brought me through the time of bitterness so that I can find that Jesus is sweet in the midst of that. And then there could be a time of refreshing. But that leads us to chapter 16. Another incredible lesson in uh, the book of Exodus. Verse 1, they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. By the way, the wilderness of Sin, has not, it's, not, it's not referring to sin as in missing the mark. Um, 
It's a place geographically, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month. 30 days, this is 30 days approximately after the Passover. So now we've gone, a month has gone by since God delivered them through the Passover, Red Sea, the whole deal there. Um, we're, we're about a month into this journey. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and in the wilderness. Okay, so 30 days, God's delivered them. They went through a little time of bitterness, but God tested them, revealed you know, hey, guys, trust me, I'm going to provide for you, but I'm going to I'm going to test you. I want you to I'm going to make a statute before you. You've got to listen to my voice. You've got to follow my leadership in your lives. Again, he said, uh, if you would diligently listen to the voice of the Lord, your God, do what is right in his eyes, my eyes, and give ear to my commandments and keep my statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians for I'm the Lord. You're healed. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to watch over you. Trust me. Just trust me. Listen to my voice. Follow my commands. Do they do that? No. Immediately start grumbling and getting upset. The Lord said, uh, let me go back to verse 3. The people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread in the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. The people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel at evening, you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning, you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumblings against the Lord. For what are we that they should grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but is against the Lord. What's going on with the Israelites? Well, a couple things are, are a problem with them. They are short-sighted, short-sighted, they're self-centered, and they are unbelieving. They are short-sighted, they are self-centered, and they are unbelieving. The, the food available in Egypt looked better than what was available in the desert, certainly. Certainly, you know, the, the problem with sin in our lives is that often sinning really is great. If we could just be honest. I mean, sin is great. It really is. It is, it is momentarily incredibly satisfying or we, none of us would ever do it. We would never have a problem sinning if it was enjoyable. If it wasn't enjoyable, if it wasn't satisfying for the moment. But that is short-sighted. We don't think about the consequences of that. I think it was R.G. Lee who once said, Satan will give you all the corn you can eat, but then he will choke you on the cob. Right? I mean, the, Satan loves to give us an extent. Oh, yeah, here's some. You want some? Okay, that's what. And we are so satisfied with that. Oh, it's so good. It's so wonderful. And then comes the hook. And when it's set in, Life goes downhill really quick, and we realize, you know what? This really isn't what I thought it was going to be. This really wasn't worth it. Wasn't when suddenly our relationships are fractured, 
when suddenly there's consequences, when suddenly there's a hangover in whatever way, <laughs> whatever sin you've, you've uh, jumped into the next day, it's just not what you thought it was going to be, regardless of what the circumstances are. When it's all said and done, in the moment, it's wonderful, spectacular. But in the long term, we realize it's just not going to satisfy and it hurts our relationship with God. It hurts our relationship with other people. And it will destroy our lives. The enemy came to kill, to steal, and to destroy. Moses had traveled the wilderness as a shepherd for 40 years. So he knew what to expect. But the Israelites did not know what to expect. And they just had an incredibly hard time trusting God in the present. They had a hard time trusting God in the present when there wasn't a lot to eat. And they had a hard time anticipating the long-term plan that, that months, less than a year from now, we're going to be in a land flowing with milk and with honey. And so, yeah, it's tough right now, but God has already promised that he's going to lead us to a land flowing with milk and honey. Here's the thing for us. There's three parts of salvation. Okay, There's justification, there is sanctification, and there's glorification. There's past tense, present tense, future tense. Okay, Past, present, future. Past tense, God has justified. He's delivered us through the blood. In the same way that he delivered them through the blood of the Lamb, he's delivered us ultimately through the blood of Christ. And we have been justified. We're viewed as if there's no sin in our life. God will not hold you accountable or judge you because of the sin that is in your life, is in my life, because you have been legally decreed not with sin because of Jesus' death on the cross. God has judged your sin in Christ. And you are saved now forevermore, if you have repented and trusted in Jesus, from the penalty of sin. Past tense. The struggle in our lives is the present tense. Because the power of sin is still evident in our lives, right? It's still alluring. It's still, we remember the tastes of Egypt. We remember the flavors of the meat pots and the food in abundance in the world. We remember, and yeah, it wasn't satisfying long-term, but it's more satisfying than an empty stomach, right? And so we are saved from the uh, penalty of sin, but the power of sin is still so powerful and alluring that in the process of sanctification, Paul said, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. This is what he's talking about, this process of growing in our relationship with Christ, where sin still draws and is alluring to us, And this is where most of our lives, this is where we're going to live the Christian life. It's in the wilderness. Or for that matter, when they got into the promised land, by the way, which is not in the Bible, a picture of heaven, it's another picture of the Christian life. They crossed the River Jordan and they went in. And what did they do? They fought battles. Battle after battle. This is preparation for more battles. The whole of the, Christ, of the, of the journey of the Israelites into the promised land, was part. it's a picture of the Christian life for us. We're saved, but then we go through a time of the wilderness, and then we cross the Jordan, and then there's times of battles. And if we don't fight right, and we don't eliminate sin in our lives, we're going to allow little nations to encamp, and they're going to begin to build a foothold, and they're going to grow and grow and grow, and they're going to overtake us, and we're going to continue fa- battling, and there's going to be a period of judges, and this is the way the Bible unfolds. We have to take sin really seriously. But in that process of sanctification, we've got to depend upon Christ. Learn how to walk with him. Learn how to be nourished by him. Learn how to trust in him. Repent of sin he exposes. Believe in Christ to be our salvation, our provision, and continue to walk with him, whether there's a lot on the table or whether there's nothing on the table. We've got to trust that Jesus is satisfying. He alone. God is good. The four G's we talk about sometimes. God is good. God is great. 
glorious, he's gracious, he is enough. And so we can trust in him in those different areas. And anytime we look to any other functional savior, we're going to find that it's not good enough, not gracious enough, not good enough, and not great enough. So we've got to trust in the goodness of God in the midst of it. But one day there will be a time where we will be glorified, future salvation. And not only will we be removed from the penalty of sin, delivered from the penalty, from the power of sin, but we will be free from the presence of sin. And that's when we're in heaven. The battle's over. And we're, it's, we don't have to rage against sin in our lives and the flesh and the devil and all those things. But in the process today, are we going to learn to walk with God? That's the question. So what are the things we can learn from this? They were short-sighted. They were self-centered. They, just, they couldn't get beyond how they were. Uh, eating from the meat pots and the food that was in Egypt, as much as it was not great, at least their bellies were full. And they'd rather have less than great food and bondage and captivity than having freedom in a future place with flowing of milk and honey. Think about your descendants, the decisions you make, and whether you refuse to go forward in your relationship with Christ or you want to continue to go backwards and run after the world, that is going to affect your kids and your kids' kids and your kids' kids. So the, dis- the, the deal is this. You've got to look at your life. And, and at some point we have to say, you know what? I can't make, I-, I can look at my past and I can look at the way I was raised and I can look at the different things that have happened in my life and they can explain where I'm at but they do not excuse my behavior and what would I do with this as I move forward. And at some point, I'm going to have to surrender these things to Christ and I'm going to have to learn to walk with him in hopes that God will change the trajectory of my future, my kids and my kids' kids' kids. And so the generational impact of their decisions, they were self-centered, they were short-sighted, and they were unbelieving. They refused to believe God for the things he had promised And God said, I'm going to provide for you something incredible. I'm going to provide bread from heaven. And that's the remainder of this passage. And if I could just go through this with you, there's some incredible, beautiful pictures in these words. He tells them in verse 9, Moses and Aaron say to the whole congregation, the people come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, They looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. God manifests his presence. In fact, that's what the glory of the Lord, when you think of the glory of God, it's the manifested presence of God. And so God has manifested his presence in a cloud. And then the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight, you shall eat meat. And in the morning, you shall be filled with bread. Then You shall know that I am the Lord, your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, the mist over the camp, the dew lifts up. There was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. When the Lord, when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? What is it? For they did not know what it it is. Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it. So he gives them very specific instructions of what they're supposed to do with this unnamed substance. The what is it? Um, He's telling them, here's how you're going to handle this. Gather it up, each of you, as much as he can eat. You shall eat 
take an omer, which is basically approximately two quarts. Think of those little quart-sized Ziploc bags that you're allowed to take through the check-in thing at the airport. That's two of those. According to the number of persons that each of you has in in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some, uh, some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, wherever... Uh, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till morning, and it bred morms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. So God says, Look, you can't store it up. And this is pre-Tupperware, okay? But you can't put it in your present-day Tupperware and then save it for the next day and think that you're going to have some. And, and the tendency was like, you know, man, we've been hungry for days now. We're struggling. We've lost all of our resources. We're, we're done with the unleavened bread. We've eaten all of that. We've, we're, we're done with <coughs> the food that we have available for them. We need some food. And I can't trust anybody else to take care of me, so I've got to trust my own resources. So I'm going to go store a little extra and I'm going to save it for tomorrow. And when they got up the next morning, they popped the lid on it. It had worms, and it was, it stank. It was gross. And so they, they, God said, look, I'm going to take care of you each day. Each day, fresh bread from heaven. Each day, I'm going to nourish you with fresh bread from heaven. Trust me. But they doubted God. And so, verse 21, morning by morning, they gathered it as much as they could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow, as a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord, bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till morning. So they laid it aside till morning, and Moses, as Moses had commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will find, you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath, and you might even, when you see the Sabbath, think the Lord has given you a rest, a rest. You might even insert the word rest. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain, each of you, in his place. Let no one go out until uh, out of his place on the seventh day so that the people rested on the seventh day. Now, the house of Israel called its name, this thing, what is it, Mano. And it's like coriander seed and white. And the taste of it is like wafers made with honey. Moses said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar, put it in an omer, uh, put in an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to keep throughout your generations. So they did bottle up. They took one can, filled it up enough proportion for one person, and they kept that and they were supposed to keep it. In fact, later, 
believe that was put in the Ark of the Covenant. It was placed in that box that represented the manifested presence of God. God's presence would rest upon it. It was this little jar full of manna. So there was one jar that kept supernaturally throughout their, throughout their generations, but any that they stored for themselves, with the exception of on the sixth day, for one more day, any others would spoil. So here's what's going on. Some people said, well, is this kind of a... People have tried to figure out if there's some natural means by which they could have gotten this. And there's, there's some... Uh, different plants that excrete some certain sugary substance, starchy kind of thing. And they thought, well, maybe that's it. Well, there's not enough of that to provide for, for two and a half million people out in the Sinai uh, wilderness. And then there's some kind of a moss that they thought, well, that maybe it's some kind of uh, manna moss that God provided for. Again, not enough for everybody. And how do you explain that it doesn't last till the next day, except for the sixth day? How do you explain the fact that God provided for them this way for 40 years He's going to provide manna for them. This is the way he's going to feed his people. This is clearly a supernatural uh, provision by God for his people that sustained them generation after generation for 40 years. Incredible. The period of time. So the last part of this uh, chapter, it says in verse 34, as the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna for 40 years till they came to the habitable land they ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of canaan and omer is the tenth of the part of ephah of an ephah so what's going on here i want to give you um, some imagery here because the bible makes it really clear uh not only that this is a temporary historical thing that happened the way god supernaturally provided for his people but beyond that there is an imagery in his provision for his people that points to beautifully to Christ. There's a tendency to look at the Old Testament and to try to spiritualize things and say, well, this thing represents Jesus and this thing represents the people and this thing. And we try to kind of uh, allegorize the Bible. And I would caution you from that. That's not a good practice to do unless the Bible allegorizes itself. And this is an example where in John chapter six, Jesus uses this imagery and he says, I am the bread of heaven. I'm the bread of heaven. I'm the bread of heaven. So we, what can we learn from manna that will help us have a fuller understanding of how wonderful Jesus is? And so there's some things that he describes manna as that I think is important for us to see. Really quickly, I'll go through these with you. Uh, we can see his humility. It's small. Verse 14 talks about it being small. It speaks of the humility of Christ. Came as a baby, even as a servant to serve us. The humility of Christ. It was, it was small. It was tiny. But yet, this little put together, was able to satisfy each individual. There was always enough for everybody. It was incredible. Humility of Jesus. Secondly, it was round. And this, even when you think of a, a wedding band, we talk about the imagery of no beginning, no end. It speaks of the eternality or the permanence of the relationship. This being round speaks of the eternality of Jesus. Symbol of his, the fact that he always was and he always will be. Jesus is the eternal God. He always was and he always will be. He's the beginning, he's the end. It speaks of his eternal nature. Thirdly, it speaks of his holiness. We're told in verse 31 that it was white, it was pure, it was white. Reminder of the sinlessness and the purity of Christ. He was the holy son of God. Holy meaning he was set apart. He was other than us. We are sinful. Jesus was holy. He was distinctly sinless. Not only that, we're told in verse 31 that it was tasted like honey. It was sweet. 
We're told in Psalms 34 to taste and see that the Lord is good. Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 through 8, that the mixed multitude went to the Jews, did not appreciate the taste of the manna, but they asked for leeks and onions and garlic of Egypt. They were not satisfied with simple manna. They ground it, they beat it, they baked it, they, and, it and when they tasted it, it tasted like oil and not like honey. There's a spiritual lesson for us in this, that we cannot improve upon the simple word of God. There's a, there's a tendency for people to take the word of God and think, well, it's really not, we, we, we need some more. And so, in fact, preachers, for that matter, will come up with lots of different creative ways to share all kinds of different thoughts and different this and different that. And even for us, we have a tendency to look to other books outside of the Bible to teach us about Jesus rather than to the word of God to be the first and primary source of the revelation of God. It's the only inerrant source of revelation of who Jesus is. And in fact, even looking at this incredible passage historically, who would have thought that God would provide for his people in such a supernatural way that would paint such a beautiful picture of Christ in the New Testament? Here is God is giving us this frame. There's no book on this earth that is nearly this good. It's just there isn't one. And yet we constantly look for jelly donuts and Twinkies and other things that are never going to satisfy us when God has given us the simple bread of life that it just you can't improve upon it. It's incredible. So not only his sweetness, but then also he, his nourishment of us, his nourishment of us. It was satisfying, strengthening for the nation lived on manna for 40 years. All that they needed, God had provided nourishment for them. And so in the same way, Jesus is all we need. God's heaven-sent bread. And we're to feast upon Christ. And the last couple thoughts on this, we understand that he came from heaven. Manna came from heaven. It's the bread of heaven. And we understand Jesus' mission was, this is crazy, to a rebellious and an ungrateful, a short-sighted, and an unbelieving people. God has provided the bread of life for a people that grumble, complain, and get mad and neglect it, and then try to find ways around it. We try to find ways to store up a little extra for the next day, or we, or we get a little less. Or when God says, I'm gonna, I have some provisions for you on the Sabbath, instead of resting in Christ, we go and we add, and we try to work on top of that to somehow try to get some extra edge to impress God or to impress others or to impress as if we can somehow construct our own righteousness, make our own provisions instead of resting in what Christ has done. The important thing to say at the end of this whole thing, this is where we got to end. I'm just going to throw these up there and we're going to talk through them briefly and then we're done. But these are important thoughts. How do you receive the bread of life? That's the question. How do we receive the bread of life? In John chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000. And after feeding the 5,000, he says, the next day the crowd stood on the other side of the sea and they saw there was a small boat there except one and and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat and that his disciples had gone away. And there came other small boats. Anyways, moving on, he says, "Um, where, where they ate, this is near the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they came themselves into the small boats. They came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said, Rabbi, where did you, where, how did you get here? And so Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, 
You seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You want to see me because uh, you were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures the eternal life, which is the son of man. The son of man will give you for on him. The father God has set his seal. Therefore, they said to him, what shall we do? So that we may work the works of God. And Jesus answered, this is the work of God that you believe in him. whom he has sent so that they said to him, what then do you? What then do you do for this sign so that we may see and believe in you? What work do you perform? Get this verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father, my heavenly father, who has given you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you, that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me I will lose none, but raise them up on the last day, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. I myself will raise him up on the last day. Jesus makes it clear. I am the manna. I am the bread of life. In fact, in Revelation chapter 2, for those that endure, it says, uh, verse 17, to the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna one day in heaven. So to receive manna, what do we need to do? Well, first thing, you you need to recognize your need. You need to recognize your need. I'm hungry, and I need what only God can provide. I need the the bread of life, the only thing that will satisfy. The second thing is you have to stoop. To get the bread of life, they had to kneel. There was a humility in getting down on your knees before God to get the only thing that's going to sustain you. And the same thing, you cannot come to Christ prideful and arrogant, thinking that you figured it out and nobody else didn't. And Jesus is going to be honored to have you on the team, and he's really excited to have you. We come broken before God, poor in spirit, desperate. We have to recognize our need. We need to come in humility before Christ. Thirdly, you have to take it for yourselves. You don't get the bread of life because your grandparents got the bread of life. You don't get the bread of life because your parents got the bread of life. You don't get the bread of life because your brothers or sisters get the bread of life or the other kids in your class got the bread of life. You have to get the bread of life for yourself. There's enough for everybody, and there's plenty for everybody. But you individually, every single one of us, has to go and get the bread of life ourselves. We have to come to Jesus. We have to believe in Jesus. We have to eat of him, take of him on our own. Nobody can do that for us. People can lead us to the manna, but nobody can make you eat it. Four things, we must do it early. Today is the day of salvation. You wait. Sun comes out, burns it up, it's gone. Wait till tomorrow, worms, it, it rots. We don't know how long we have. We don't know how often, how many mornings we'll be awake and salvation of God will be springing up before us, available for us. And at what point do we reject God enough to where he says, you know what, I'm closing the jar or I'm bringing out the sun and I'm withholding 
the man is not available anymore. I don't, I don't know when that is. None of us know when that is, but we don't want to risk it. Today is the day of salvation. And why would we put off the all-satisfying nourishment that comes through Christ, the salvation, just to believe in him? What, what else does the world have that's going to even begin to compare? We must do it early. And lastly, we must continue to be nourished by the bread of life. It's kind of interesting when the Bible tells us to taste and see the Lord is good because he's on one side all satisfying. But in the same time, it's so good that we want to continue to be nourished by it. It's not that we need to continue to get saved again and again and again. It's not what it's saying. But it's saying once you've tasted, what else is going to satisfy? And so daily we need to be going to the word of God in prayer and study to feast upon the word of God. It might just be a little verse that you carry. It might be the blue card for the next month. That's the only verse in the Bible you read. Praise God if you're not reading any other scripture apart from this. Here's the last thought. The funny thing for us is we kind of reverse this. You see, they would get food every single day and they rested on the Sabbath and they had enough. But you know what? We come and we get fed once a week and we think that's enough for every other day. The reality is we need Jesus every day. I need him as much tomorrow as the next day. In fact, here's what's going on. On Sunday, it's a little easy because God gives us the word of God and we just sit and we go and we kneel and we, we humble ourselves and we, we feast upon whatever God gives us as the body of Christ comes together to nourish upon the bread of life. But the rest of the days of the week, you're going to have to go and get it on your own if you're going to have the strength for the journey Strength for the journey, you're going to have to be in the word and prayer and be encouraged by other believers and, and be in fellowship with other believers and be in the word and prayer, praying throughout the day and throughout your day. Or you're not going to have strength and you're going to come back in next Sunday really malnourished, struggling because you haven't eaten of the bread of life that is available all the time for us. If you have never eaten of the bread of life for, your, for yourself. If you have never taken, and a lot of us, man, we live around the bread of life. Uh, we, we're around it. You maybe even have a jar of it on your counter, spiritually speaking. You've kind of boxed it out. You know it's there, but you've never really consumed it. You've never really humbled yourself to where you can take upon Jesus in your life. You've never repented of your sin and really truly believed in Christ. That's ultimately, simply put, to eat of the bread of life, it's repenting of your sin and it's believing in Jesus, that he alone satisfies, has paid our debt and satisfied. You've never done that. You cannot rely upon somebody else, and you do not want to wait another day. Every Sunday, when the service is over, even in this time as we go into a time of reflection and, and giving, I'm in the back of the room. I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to answer questions, love to work through Scripture. If you have any questions about something that was exposed. But most importantly, if you don't know Jesus and you've never eaten of the bread of life, please don't leave here with that question remaining, because you don't know that you have another nanosecond, much less another day, week, month, year. Eat of the bread of life while it's available. It's, it's there for us. Why would we not partake of it now? To think about that. And if you are a believer and you know Christ, then what's your plan this week? How are you going to be nourished? How are you going to be fed? Are you going to come back in next Sunday malnourished? How do we take next steps in our relationship with Christ to where we can make sure that we're eating daily of the bread of life? Right.